I'm Michael Foster, and you're listening to It's Good to Be a Man, the podcast where we are extending God's house and father rule by helping men to establish their own houses in strength, workmanship, and wisdom. In this episode, I continue our short series on how to lead your wife. In part one, we looked at uh, the husband uh, who is leading as a husband who's following King Jesus. By submitting himself to Christ's mission, he develops the weight and gravitas necessary to pull and hold a godly woman in, in his orbit. So the God is the sun, the man is the earth, the woman is the moon. So part of being able to lead is just having the weight, and you get that weight, that strength, by submitting yourself to God. So as you submit yourself to God, you call her to submit herself to you. So submission requires mission. Now, in this episode, we're going to turn to the issue of the wife herself and how a leader can't lead someone who won't follow. So leading requires following. Commentarians love to say, if he loved her like Jesus loves the church, she'd follow him. And that is just anti-scriptural, non-biblical nonsense. The Lord is a faithful husband to his people, yet they often wandered from him. Have commentarians forgotten the graphic example of Hosea made to marry a whore as a living parable of Israel's infidelity to her husband? She repeatedly and determinedly abandoned God all the day long. He was a perfect leader to them, and they refused to follow. Isaiah 65.2 says, I have spread out my hands all day long to rebellious people who walk in the way which is not good, following their own thoughts. And then Matthew 23.37, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, who kills the prophets and stones those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children together, the way a hen gathers her chicks under her wings, and you were unwilling. We find the same thing in the New Testament. We find the Lord's bride, the church, wandering from her excellent husband. Consider, for instance, his warning to the church of Ephesus in Revelation 2. But I have this against you, that you've left your first love. Therefore, remember from where you've fallen and repent and do the deeds you did at first, or else I'm coming to you and will remove your lampstand out of its place unless you repent. It's unscriptural to place the blame for the conduct of a wife squarely on the shoulders of her husband. As the head of his family, a man is answerable to God for those under his care to the degree that he has power to rightly order their lives. The extent and limits of this power with regards to his wife are clearly modeled in Numbers 30, a passage in which you, you don't hear uh, complementarians uh, discussing very often when they discuss marriage. Here, here it is. Uh, if she vowed in her husband's house or bound herself by a pledge with an oath, and her husband heard of it and said nothing to her and did not oppose her, then all her vows shall stand, and every pledge by which she bound herself shall stand. But if her husband makes them null and void on the day that he hears them, then whatever proceeds out of her lips concerning her vows or concerning her pledge of herself shall not stand. Her husband has made them void, and Yahweh will forgive her. Any void, or excuse me, any vow and any binding oath to afflict herself her husband may establish. On her husband, uh, 
or her husband may make it void. But if her husband says nothing to her from day to day, then he establishes all her vows or all her pledges that are upon her. He has established them because he said nothing to her on the day uh, that he heard of them. But if he makes them null and void after he has heard of them, then he shall bear her iniquity. That's Numbers 30, 10, verse through 15. In the modern day, unfortunately, this authority is practically demolished by secular law to whatever degree the woman wishes. And we'll get into that question of federal responsibility another time, but for the moment, let us summarize by saying that both the husband and his wife are answerable to God. A husband for the duty of cherishing and ruling his wife, and the wife for the duty of fearing and submitting to her husband. So think of that through the lens of Ephesians 5.33, where it says, Nevertheless, each individual among you also is to love his own wife even as himself, and the wife must see to it that she respects her husband. First Timothy 3.12, Deacons must be husbands of only one wife and good managers of their children and their own households. And First Peter 3.6, just as Sarah obeyed Abraham, calling him Lord, you have become her children if you do what is right without being frightened by any fear. So a woman will, she'll find it wearisome and difficult to respect and submit to a man who isn't loving and ruling well. I mean, that's true of of us when we have to submit to uh, elders in a church that aren't doing a good job or a manager at a business that's not doing a good job. And so it is with any subordinate. Uh, if the person that is placed over them as a leader is not doing well, it's going to it's gonna wear you down. How often do you have conversations with other men that are telling you about how they don't respect their boss? But she will also find it challenging in other ways to follow a man who is leading well. His leading well doesn't cancel out her agency, though it certainly may shape it. There's a reason why scripture repeatedly commands wives to submit. Submission to even a good leader, even a perfect one, is difficult, but it's also critical. And we don't say this to, to alarm you. We're not suggesting that no matter how well you lead, you might never get anywhere. Women do naturally want to follow men who know where they're going. Their inclination is to fall in line behind a husband with a strong purpose. They're attracted to men with a mission, men with gravitas. But like all of us, they have competing desires, and one of their desires is for their husband, Genesis 3.16, in the same way that sin's desire is for us. This can make it difficult for them to follow you, even when their own conscience bids them to do so. It's only grace that anyone ever willingly submits to anyone else in a fallen world. Sin, in its essence, is an unrelenting demand for self-rule, to be your own boss, to be your own God, your own Lord. So we all we all kick against God's hierarchy. We all kick against God's uh, order in this world. But because submission is only of grace, this is the exact point at which you should be most encouraged. Because it's the exact point at which Christians are separated from the world and have the most advantage. Whereas unbelievers are the sons of the devil representing his name and his thirst to make himself like the Most High. Think of Isaiah 14. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of assembly in the recesses of the north. 
It will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. That is the attitude of the devil, and that is often the attitude of, of uh, rebellious men and rebellious women. We are, as Christians, we are sons of God, representing the name of Jesus, who, although he was the very form of God himself, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself for our sake in order to endure even being exposed naked on a cross until dead. This is the mind which we have. If we are indeed indwelt by the Spirit, this is the mind which which we arm ourselves in anticipation of a similar victory. This is the mind which renews our own, transforming us, if indeed we are being transformed into the image of God. We have this mind because God gave it to us. It's the very thing that separates us from the world. The importance of this doctrine of regeneration is so great that we don't even have time to do it justice here. Um, I'm only mentioning it to remind you that Christians are not slaves to sin and the flesh. This is not to say that we easily overcome our desire for self-rule. On the contrary, our flesh wages war against us. Romans uh, 7.23 would be a good example of this. But I see a different law in the members of my body, waging war against the law of my mind and making me a prisoner of the law of sin, which is in my members. But because we are counted crucified with Christ, because we have received his spirit, we are able to crucify our fallen nature with its passions and desires. See with what mercy God's treated you and what power he gives you in your marriage. Listen to this. For those who live according to the flesh set their mind on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. For it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. The Spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you. He who raised Christ from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies, to the Spirit who dwells in you. If you are a if you're truly born again from above, if your wife is also, then you're his workmanship, created for good works, uh, which God prepared beforehand, that you should walk in them. This means not only that you can walk in them, but that you will walk in them. These good works all stem from your submission to the rule of God. In other words, although the sin that dwells in your wife and yourself makes a perfect marriage impossible, the spirit who dwells in you makes a good marriage entirely attainable, a blessing to which you can both look forward, assuming you continue to walk in him. Therefore, as usual, you must keep your aims and expectations between the ditches. You must lead well and especially develop the virtues required to have gravitas, to be the center that holds your family together in your orbit. If you do, you can have confidence that your wife will remain in that orbit. But leading well doesn't guarantee her submission, any more than leading poorly guarantees her rebellion. This should be common sense. 
The only reason we've spent any time on this is because the expectations both of complementarians and red pill Christians have slipped aside into the ditches. The point is to commit yourself to the duties of leadership you are answerable for and rest upon God for the duties of submission she is answerable for. Nothing more, nothing less. So until next time, be on the alert, stand firm in the faith, act like men, be strong, let all that you do be done in love. 